You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and find out it's a whole lot more fun in its own proper context. Um, right. Um, you know, way more stuff to learn that way. Yeah, yeah. When you actually read what's on the page and and understand that it was written for an audience that also understood it and what those people, you know, I hate to use the phrase. Yeah. Capable, I hate to use the phrase capable of understanding because I'm pretty sure that any one of those people. Uh, would understand things, the same stuff we do, if they were raised in the same context as we are. But, well, yeah. Because, I mean, so I was listening to, I, I was listening to someone the other day, and they were talking about the, you know, the ancients just didn't have a concept, didn't have the concept. And I'm like, well, they kind of did, but they also kind of did, you know? <laughs> they, they worded yeah. things differently, but they were, you can't say they weren't deep thinkers. They went as far as their, knowledge base allowed them to go and and who are we to say that science is that much deeper than spiritual things um for one so and i'm not well, anti-science i should make that clear up front but now i'm just rambling this is a long intro so. <laughs> well and i i kind of wonder too how much does that like uh, you know the whole evolutionary theory that you know people have become more evolved and we we talk about that a lot instead of recognizing that you know, God created man in his image and we have not improved on that. You know, we haven't right. made that better as time <laughs> has gone by. And so, you know, I, I think that sometimes, even though we may not adhere or espouse to an evolutionary um, position, and we're not going to talk about how that may or may not fit into a Christian worldview, but I think what that interprets into in our mind, whether we, we adhere to it or not, there's some element of it that humanity has somehow gotten better as, as we've progressed. And, you know, and I think there's certain elements about societal and, and cultural relationships that have gotten better. But I mean, what are you, where are those changes, those, those betterments coming from? Most of the time it's coming from a Judeo Christian worldview. And so, you know, I, I think that we've just let that, that mindset kind of seep into how we are thinking and how we're processing even if we aren't completely aware of it. And, you know, when we've got, we can look at scientific advancements like in, in Egypt. I mean, they calculated the circumference of the world long before any of the, the astronomers who were credited from Europe, you know, for doing it. And they were able to do it with just a sundial and some star charts and, you know, some, some advanced mathematics. So yeah. we, we aren't as, as advanced as we might think we are is what I'm getting down to. Yeah, we've we've built on the technology that's come before, but that's not the same as improving as individuals and as a human race. That's just taking advantage of the fact that we had smart ancestors who built a great foundation. Well, and, yeah, yeah, and and if anything our technology has improved, our ability to archive things has improved, our mm-hmm. our, you know, ability to to verify facts for those who actually want to do that has improved. <laughs> um and so, yeah. you know, hey, the great thing about confirmation bias is it really shortens your research time. This is very true. Yeah, so uh, you, know, so it, you can become an expert in every subject that way. Well, you uh, know, I think one of the greatest things that has helped me, and this is just a matter of, I did not do this on purpose. This is just one of my personality things. I love to argue. And so I would actually, especially when I was coming back to the faith, I would like get books that argued against Christianity or argued for a different religion or different worldview. And I would find myself arguing with these points. And so sometimes even whenever I'm for something or I I agree with something, I will actually research the other side because if you don't research all the objections, then affirmations mean nothing. And so we, we need to be able to, to put ourselves into a position of, okay, what if I actually did believe this? What if I actually did think this way? Where are the holes in my own logic that, that I might agree to or affirm? 
but that's only going to be exposed by studying the arguments of the other side. And so, you know, we can't just stop whenever we get somebody who agrees with us. If we stop there, we're just being lazy. So um, that's my little rant of the morning because I get frustrated with people who do that. And I don't yeah. want to be one of those people. And, and I, I, just, I didn't you know, necessarily mean to take us there. It's just we were we were talking about some <laughs> similar stuff earlier. And I'm still sleepy and kind of kind of grumpy. If so. I can stay focused on this at all this week, everybody just needs to be grateful because, you know, we're in the middle of moving and we finally got the house. And I'm like, as soon as we get done here, like I'm packing up all my podcasting stuff to take to the new house. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited. About I am, that. too. Because I haven't, since Ty and I have been married, we have not lived in a, any kind of home that has not had wheels. So that's pretty big. Because even when we first got married, we were in the double wide. So it had wheels. So this right. is the first right. time we've had like a real house. <laughs> yeah. On a, on, so a, on a firm foundation. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so I, I'm going to be a little out of place for a little bit i mean yeah i was moving stuff around yesterday going where do i need to put this yeah which and is I'm terrible like, of it... me because that's how i should have started the show i should have congratulated you <laughs> uh for on behalf of the people who listen here so. uh well you know I, I i know everybody's happy and that's been the other really cool thing because i a lot of our friends have known that this has just been like a really big deal for us to get out of this camper and it needed to happen before the winter and They've been with me on this whole saga of, oh, we found a place. Uh, no, that one, didn't, that one didn't work out. There's nothing available. I, you know, just the whole, it, it's just drama. Sure. So I'm kind of glad that we get to, you know, relax, put some roots down. And, uh, yeah. you well, know, we'll, I'll say the, the drama is kind of the housing market in Oklahoma right now. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. But, you know, that is one thing I can say. This house God just opened the doors for us to get into a really nice place and, you know, within budget. And it's just, it's, it was, uh, it, it meets our needs right now. And so that's, that's really cool because we were beginning to think, oh no, we're going to have to spend another winter in the camper. <laughs> so I am glad, glad, glad to, to be able to say that's not going to happen. So yeah, well, we are anyway. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I look forward to visiting soon. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll have a guest room where you can. We don't have yeah. to throw you like on the bus or anything. It'll be it'll be good. So, well, cool. Well, hey, I'm I'm sure everyone wants to know about all that, but um, find me more, on Facebook. I'll talk yeah, about it <laughs> more about that on Facebook. For now, uh, we are actually back to Second Samuel. Yeah, and yeah. That's what we came here for, anyway. <laughs> right, Second Samuel seventeen. And we're going to kind of uh, step away from it. We're going to use this kind of foundation. We wrapped up last week kind of talking about the similarities between um, David and Absalom's stories and how they fit together and then how they, there were reversals within the, those stories. And, you know, we've got these, these two men who use their authority, power, and status to commit these acts of violence against women. And we have uh, wisdom from God is also another theme in, in these stories. Now, in David's, it, it's not quite so apparent because we're told that Nathan comes and talks to David, uh, Nathan the prophet, as opposed to you. And so um, we're told that he comes and talks to David. And what we need to remember is wisdom is one of the inherent qualities of a prophet. Anytime we're talking about a prophet, we're talking about a wise man. We're talking about someone who's been endowed with this gift of wisdom. So it's a little bit more obscure within David's story, but it is very much called out in Absalom's story with Ahithophel and then later Hushai. But then you have that reversal where David's sins are covered up. They're concealed. They're, they're, he goes to great lengths to cover them up, and they're committed in the dark of night, where Absalom's are committed in broad daylight. There's no concealment. But then when David gets caught, of course, he repents. And we talked a great deal about that in earlier episodes. And Absalom, he doesn't. There's no repentance. It, it, there's this arrogance that carries him through. So that's kind of where we ended last week, because that's our first step back, because we're going to look at a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. And it's really, I got so excited um, exploring this idea. And if I'm wrong, I want you to know I'm wrong because this is where, I, this is my research, okay? This was not something I pulled from anybody else and I may be off 
So, you know, double check me. And I, I'm not going to say I have all the answers, but I think I'm onto something here. Because if one step back from Absalom's story here in 17 takes us to David and Bathsheba, two steps back takes us to Samson. Okay. And we've, we've already established there's some deep connections between Samson and Absalom. The most obvious, of course, is the hair. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the two guys that were talking about the long hair, there's some speculation that Absalom may have even been a Nazarite, which, again, would connect us back to Samson. Uh, we got the burning of the fields. Remember, Samson released the foxes to burn the Philistine fields where Absalom burned Joab's field to get Joab to bring him before his father so they could reconnect. We have all the sexual sins that go on in Samson's life. And obviously, Absalom just committed some great sexual sins. By great, I mean huge, massive, not good. Um, And ultimately, their death is brought about by their vanity and self-confidence and their arrogance and the ability to think that, you know, not the ability, but the fact that they thought they were invincible. So you, you've got those connections to Samson. Now, if we take three steps back, we're going to land in Genesis 6. And so we have sons of God, okay? Sons of God looked on the daughters of man. We, we've talked about this a lot. If you're familiar with Heiser's material, you're already familiar with this. Now, Absalom, by the fact that he is the son of a king, and a king is a representative of God on earth, and then plus we also had that conversation in 2 Samuel 7, where God said he's going to adopt David's sons. So we have sons of God, a connection there. And the sons of God were given authority to rule. That's Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. The, you know, the earth is divided up, and they are given their allotted portions, and God keeps Israel as his own. And, and now the sons of David, if all had gone according to plan, they would have been the ones who inherited, you know, again, you get that inherited, uh, heritage and inheritance language, but they would have inherited the right to rule just as their father had the right to rule. And the sons of God took daughters of men. And of course, obviously, now we have Absalom taking women also. Now, the sons of God also assembled on a high place. If you go back to the book of Enoch and we, we look at that story, which if you've studied the book of Enoch, and again, always have to offer the caveat. Enoch fills out the story. It's not had the same protection as canon. It's important, but it is not canon. So we need to be careful because, be, because there are some later editions, especially second Enoch, third Enoch. The, these get beyond. Uh, our most ancient sources. We we want to be careful with this book because it has not always been used well. Uh, but it is very important because it does fill in the blanks that we're talking about in Genesis 6. So if you go to Enoch, it talks about the sons of God. They assemble on a high place on a mountaintop to, to discuss what they're going to do. And of course, Absalom's um, Violence against the women uh, uh, happened on the rooftop, so a high place. And we talked about how with David and Bathsheba, that connected David's sin with Bathsheba also back to these sons of God or the watchers or the, the, the lowercase e Elohim. Now, God sent Michael to rebuke the watchers and punish them for their sins. Nathan, of course, goes to David. And Ahithophel is Absalom's counterfeit. He's the, not the voice of wisdom at this point. He, he's the, the one who leads Absalom astray. And so you kind of have these counterparts and again, reversals. But, and then in verse, uh, the second, I'm sorry, the sixth point is divine retribution. It, it's given to all parties, whether we're talking about David or we're talking about Absalom or we're talking to the sons of God. Divine retribution for their sins is part of the equation. And remember, part of, uh, 2 Samuel um, 17, we are told in verse, um, which verse is it? 14, for God had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So this is divine retribution specifically, specifically for the abuse of women. Now, that's huge. That is 
like something women who have been in abusive situations never, ever hear from the pulpit, that God would actually bring about divine retribution for people who abuse women. Instead, we're told that we can change the marriage if we are more submissive. We're told that we can win him to the Lord if we're nicer, sweeter, more sexually available, whatever. We get all this wonderful advice. Instead of saying, no, there's a God who cares so much about the fate and the status and the treatment of women that he enacts divine retribution against those who hurt women. Mm-hmm. I, that's, that would, be, would have been just life-changing if I could have heard that when I was in my previous marriage. And I, I just, I get excited about it because so often when we talk about God and his relationship to women, there's this tendency to think that women are second class. We're, we're an afterthought, that we were put here to meet men's sexual needs and the fact that they shouldn't be alone. And we fail to acknowledge that we too are created in the image of God. It's Genesis 127. Don't skip Genesis 127 when you're talking about the creation of women. We are created in the image of God also, and we are protected by God and valued and loved by God. So anyway, I won't get too far afield on that. I had another conversation earlier this morning with another woman who I just, she and I are on the same page with this. And, right. and I just, I, she got me wound up <laughs> because there, there's just so much misinformation, so much misinformation about women. And yeah, Doug Overmeyer, um, when I got to spend this weekend with him earlier this month, or I guess it was last month at this point, um, was at a conference with him and several others. And he actually taught on the importance of women and, and to God and our voices being significant within the body. And I just, Doug's stuff is so good and acknowledging women. And I really do appreciate that because we need more male voices speaking up about this issue and not just women going, hey, you need to pay attention to us. So anyhow, back to my notes. In earlier episodes, we talked about how David and Bathsheba, uh, they followed the outline of the watchers in, in Enoch uh, and as you know, the retelling of Genesis 6. And also Samson's story, we talked about that in his, when we covered his stuff about how it connects back to the Watchers. And so I don't want to spend a lot of time um, rehashing stuff that we covered, but I just want to remind people, these are established patterns. They're they're not something that I'm just making up. Uh, They were already there. That stuff does come from other scholars, but the way I'm putting it together might be a little different. So All the stories that we've talked about, Absalom, David, Samson, and Genesis 6, we've got the same themes. We've got the sons of God. We're talking angels, Samson, David, Absalom. And so Absalom as the son of the king or the representation of a god. Uh, We have a rebellion against fathers, uh, father God, specifically in some cases. So we've got the human and divine, the sons both rebelling against human and divine fathers. Major theme not just in the Bible, but within all of ancient mythology, which is very interesting. We see this abuse of power and authority to commit acts of violence against women and their families. So there's this this desire for death, to overthrow, to kill, to maim the father. This is part of the stories. And again, not just in the Bible. Um, Samson's probably the only exception, but he does actually ask his father to violate the Torah. He asked his father to facilitate sin, and the father gave in to that, which led to Samson's marriage to the Philistine woman, which caused all sorts of problems for the nation. Mm-hmm. Then we have God's divine wrath and judgment against these um, men and angels, and it's particularly severe for this crime. So we we. We could have broken down these three steps into smaller steps, by the way. There, there's other points, but I'm just kind of looking at big themes right now. And we probably have to do at least, you know, five more episodes on this part. But um, I just want to take one more step back. And if we take one more step back from Genesis 6, we end up in Genesis 3. Now, this is where it gets really exciting for me because I think most of us know that if you want to understand what's happening in Genesis 3, you actually have to move forward in Scripture to get to Ezekiel 28. And this is when Ezekiel addresses first 
the human king of Tyre. And then he addresses the power behind the human king, the the God that this human king is supposed to represent. And when I say the God, I'm talking little g godlet here. And, you know, this is the supernatural power behind the throne, the deity that the king of Tyre stood in place of for the people. And, you know, there's a there's some debate on whether or not this was, uh, you know, could have been one of the Nephilim, one of the Rephaim. Or if it's just he represented. So in that case, it would be like an actual descendant of the these Elohim watchers. If it's just a representation where he was adopted into the family, um, still a representation, but not a direct quote unquote bloodline. I don't want to get into all of that and how that would work. Go see Tim Stedman over at Answers to Giant Questions, also on the Raven Creek site. Um, but we know that this person in Ezekiel 28 is what Heiser calls the divine rebel. In Genesis 3, he's identified as the serpent, or more specifically, as the Nakash. And so, if we look at Ezekiel 28, 12 through 14, this being that was in the garden is described as having perfect beauty. In 2 Samuel 14, 25, we're told, Now there was none so, so much to be praised for as a handsome or beautiful appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So we have this connection of beauty, of something desirable, something very perfect, something complete. They shared this trait. Ezekiel 28, 14b mentions that he was on the holy mountain of God and was in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, Heiser has a whole episode over the stones of fire and what that means. But I'm going to just real quick synopsis, and it's also in Unseen Realm. But the stones of fire are divine beings that were in the garden also. It, it's not just rocks that were on fire. This isn't lava. This isn't some kind of volcanic thing that would make living in the garden, uh, you know, a horrible thing. This is... It's not, a reference, it's not a reference to the lava monsters in uh, the Noah movie? No, no, absolutely not. But, you know, but the idea of burning in the, in the Old Testament isn't always burning like a fire that consumes something. It's something bright. It's something that, that lends light. Because we have to remember at this point in time, that was the only way you got light that was not from the sun. It had to come from something that was lit, something that was on fire. So we can have this idea of shining, uh, of uh, brilliance. It, it doesn't have to be an actual fire. But how else would you explain it if you're an ancient person? If you don't know any better and you don't know the concepts of how light works or how to produce light any other way, a fire is the closest that you're going to get. So, in other words, what Ezekiel is telling us is that this Nakash is part of the family. He, he dwelt in the place where the Creator and his family lived. And you know, we get that language in Genesis uh, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, where God's talking to the family. And this is not somebody who, you know, the Nakash just didn't appear out of nothing. And he was, he was part of a community. And this is why the rebellion was so intense and so severe and deserved such, you know, just a divine stomp down for what he did because he betrayed his family. So, of course, we have this connection with Absalom once again. And I think we've established that with um, the prior episodes. In, in verse 15, we're told that he's blameless, blameless uh, this is Nakash, until iniquity was found with him. So we, we got to remember in the story, Absalom's the honorable hero. He stepped up when Tamar was abused. He was the one who offered her protection. David didn't take his daughter into his house. Absalom took his sister into his house. and so. At first, when we meet him, we want to love him. We want to like him. We root for him because he's being all the good things that David's failing to be as a father and a king. And so, you know, in the beginning, Absalom is also blameless. Verse 16, it says, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. In, the midst, in your midst and sin, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. So remember when Absalom killed Amnon, 
he immediately flees. He goes into exile. And we know that David's, you know, we don't know that David sends him into exile, but Absalom was definitely afraid of his father's retribution. He did leave. And then when he was brought back to Jerusalem, David wouldn't see him. He treated him as a profane thing. So we, we have this, this, another connection here. And the, um, Let's see. The divine rebel is called the guardian cherub. And so even as he's, okay, so the guardian cherub, okay, that's, I'm having a hard time reading my notes because I was in a hurry when I wrote them. But the the idea that the guardian cherub was the one who protected, again, there's this this aspect in Absalom's story where he's the one who, who is the protector. He's the defender. And that was definitely true for Tamar. So, in verse 17, we're, we're told, your heart was corrupted because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And we've seen how the way Hushai was able to, to sway Absalom, that was through his vanity, by appealing to his ego. You're going to raise a bigger army up than your dad. You're going to have more success. You're going to tear a city apart with ropes. People are going to come to you and serve you. And they're going to make sure that city is, you know, there's nothing left. But a pebble, maybe not even that. So Hushai was able to appeal to to um, Absalom's ego and his splendor and his beauty and say, hey, this is how great and grand you could be, mm-hmm. so much more than your father. And this is the same mindset that, that Ezekiel describes that Nakash is having in that garden. So verse 17b says, I will expose you before kings. Well, Absalom wasn't just exposed before kings. Absalom exposed himself before the nation. And so he did that to himself. And whenever he he raped the concubines on the rooftop. And so another another connection there. Verse 18 says, you profaned your sanctuaries. So Absalom actually profaned his own home. If he's going to take over as the king, where's he going to live? He's going to live in the palace. He's going to live on that roof, you know, in the house where that rooftop was. The, the, the home of a king was a sacred place. And so Absalom actually did this himself. God didn't even have to do it. Absalom did it himself. And then it concludes, uh, again, Ezekiel 28, concludes with God's judgment. And that's exactly how Absalom's story is going to conclude. It's with God's divine judgment. Now, I think I need to be clear. We don't have precise equivalencies in every spot, but we do have these shared themes. And sometimes we have some very precisely shared themes. And we we need to remember that Eden was the original sacred space. Israel as a whole was sacred space which God had to fight and reclaim. You know, he sent his people, Israel, to fight and reclaim uh, in the Canaanite uh, conquest. Jerusalem particularly was a sacred space that David had to, excuse me, my husband's calling, uh, that David had to reclaim. And so uh, when he captured it, what was David's desire? To build a temple, to build sacred space. And so then we get to the temple later on, which Solomon will build, and that's specifically going to be sacred space. This whole book that we call the Bible is about the creation, the lost, and the restoration of sacred space. And Mm -hmm. when we talk about sacred space, we're talking about God creating a place where he can meet with his people, where he can walk with them, where he can manifest to them, where there can be an ongoing intimate relationship. It's not some kind of abstraction. It is about God being real in our midst. And I think we forget that, that when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, who cares about the Ark of the Covenant? It's a box. Yeah, it's a fancy box. But the really important, significant thing about the Ark of the Covenant was that God's manifest presence was above it. His Shekinah glory was above it. And he was enthroned on the wings of the cherubim. So that's, that's the important thing when we talk about these stories is the fact that God is known and wants to be known. And we need to hang on to that, that, that theme through the book because it becomes even more important when we get to the New, the New Testament. I can't even talk. Oh, my gosh. But every time we have 
this quest for sacred space, there is always a crucial factor that seems to uh, show up, and it's the rebellious son. Whether is he specifically identified as a rebellious son or just a son as part of the nation, and so this rebellious son is—he's always poised to destroy sacred space, or he's poised to get people evicted from sacred space, mm. and so. The ones who who create sacred space seem to always have to come up against the, this manifestation of evil. So in the garden, it's the Nakash, it's the serpent. In the in the story of the of Genesis six, you've got the Watchers, the the sons of God. And so in Samson, you know, when he provoked the Philistines to come and attack Israel and to to cause problems and to even divide Israel as a nation, where they couldn't operate as a unified nation. Again, that, that's all part of the destruction because that's what these attacks do. They bring division. And, you know, Adam and Eve were divided from God. Um, humanity became divided from God w- before the flood. And now we have Samson dividing the nation of Israel. And then Absalom, what's he doing? He's dividing the nation once again because are they going to support David? Or are they going to support Absalom? Who's the real king uh, of Israel? And so. In all of these stories, and even with the Davidic story where David is the one who for a moment looks like a watcher, he looks like a son of God, we, we come back to that repentance. And we come back to him saying, hey, I'm out of line. I need to submit to Father. This is how you get returned to the, to the family. This is how you get placed back into a spot where you can experience sacred space. It's through submission. It's through obedience. It's through repentance. And uh, all three of those things are very important. Uh, you know, everybody in, in Christianity, not just women, uh, I know this is going to surprise some people, are called to submit. And, you know, we're called to submit to each other, mutual submission, and we're called to submit to God. And that's how you know you're part of the family. It's because you're willing to submit the way you're supposed to, the way God says we're supposed to in his revealed word. Mm-hmm. Now, Absalom, he rebels against David, but unlike his father, he's never able to submit. He, he just, he, he doesn't do it. Samson does um, repent at the last moment. At that point, it's too late for him to be saved. He's going to die in, in the temple of, of Dagon. And the, the, the lesser Elohim, whenever they, hey, they get, well, whenever they talk to Enoch and they're like, hey, we, we, want, to, we want to repent, God tells them, too late. Uh-uh. You, you knew what it was like to be in my presence. You knew what it was like to be a part of the family. You rejected it. You don't get to do this because you're, you're a different being. And anybody who can stand in the, the presence of God to experience him, him the way that the angels experienced him in the divine courts, if they can reject him, then what hope really is there for them? So I know there's some popular teachings. I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's some popular teachings that talk about, well, what if Satan um, repents? What if the rebellious angels repent? Will they be re- uh, restored? There's even people who advise praying on their behalf. The Bible doesn't make any room for that, okay? Repentance. Well, it, it, it's, it's kind of that difference between the, I mean, we're talking about the difference between like, accidental sinning and then straight up rebellion, rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, and being discontent with and just grumbling against all the good things that God is and does. Right. I mean, that's a, a hugely, a hugely different uh, category of, of sin. And, you know, there's, there's the accidental things and, and then there's the straight up, no, I'm done with, uh, you know, worshiping a good God. Well, and that's the thing. We, we as humanity, we're still learning about God. Uh, we, we see through that glass dimly. We're, we're still trying to, to come to grips with the totality of who he is. And the angels didn't have to do that. They, they, they were with him at creation. They watched him speak the universe into existence. Mm-hmm. They, and they still decided to rebel. And, and, you know, where we a lot of times living in these very physical bodies and this very physical world, trying to grasp the, the true nature of, uh, of the spiritual realm and how it impacts us. I mean, that's mind-blowing. 
And it's hard to grab hold of. And I think God has grace for us because he recognizes our limitations. These are not limitations that the angels had. And so we, we have to realize that as human beings, we have a very unique space. And that is one of the things that separates us from angels. It's we weren't created with this full knowledge. We, we actually are the ones that are being wooed to God. We're the ones who are being pursued. We're the ones that he is allowing to, to take this very slow journey. Kind of like, you know, it's a bad analogy, but the dating relationship where you kind of, you, you meet someone and they're dressed up nice for the first time and you slowly develop this intimacy over time. And, and that's what God is doing. He, he, he's writing a great romance with humanity, not to sound too cliche or cheesy, that the other parts of creation don't get to experience. And we should feel honored in that, that he would actually not overwhelm us, that he would not show up in all of his glory and splendor and, you know, just compel us to, to um, bow at his feet because he could. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's kindness, that, that's gentleness and mercy. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes we forget that because we don't really think about how awesome he is. And I don't mean that in like the cliche awesomeness. I mean like that in the literal awesome um, definition. But, you know, we have the ability to become sacred space. And, you know, when the spirit of the Lord dwells in us, we become sacred space. And, and the, the divine rebel fig- figure in our story a lot of times isn't so much an outside force as it is our own flesh. And so even in the Old Testament, we see that whenever the Holy Spirit descends on someone, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, that they become sacred space in that moment. And that's the reason why Samson's story is so powerful, because even in the middle of Dagon's temple, in the place where Dagon ruled supreme, God's power was still greater than Dagon. Samson became the sacred space in that temple in that moment because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and gave him this great strength. Now, um, Jesus bluntly says that David experienced the Holy Spirit. That's in Mark 12, 36. And he becomes sacred space as he allows God's spirit to flow through him. And, and it's not something that just happens in the New Testament. Now, it's, it's opened up on a bigger scale in the New Testament. And it becomes a reality for all of, those who, all of us who choose to, to engage and, and live our lives in such a way that God can be present in our everyday actions. And so we are sacred space now. And we should expect to have that rebellious aspect of ourselves rise up. Is there going to be outside opposition? Absolutely. That, that's just a given. But most of the time, what we need to deal with is us. And so um, I, I think this, there's a lot, of good, um, a lot of good parallels and teaching points that come out of this, um, kind of per- perceiving it this way and kind of looking at it from this perspective. perspective. But Absalom also shows us another important point. He shows us that being among the elect, which Israel, the nation, was the elect, and even being a prince of Israel does not merit special favor. Just because you're somebody that God has allowed to inhabit this this very unique and special position within the earthly realm and the earthly hierarchy, if you mess up, you still have to deal with the consequences of your choices. Now, if right. you repent, you don't deal with the condemnation. But if you do, don't repent, then you know, divine wrath is yours. You get what you chose. Um, you know, God's, to be a part of God's creation, to be a part of God's kingdom, um, and to be someone who can inhabit and be that sacred space on this earth, repentance and submission are required. And I don't think we can... Um, drive that home enough. You know, no one is, is exempt from the basic requirements and dictates of our faith. That, that's just what it comes down to. You, right. don't get, you don't get to say, well, this is just how I am. Um, I'm a mouthy, sarcastic, often angry person. I don't get to say that's just how God made me deal with it. I, I have to actually work and try to present his love and his kindness and his mercy to those around us. 
That's, that's how it works. And so I bring my flesh into submission. I bring my mind and heart into submission. Some days I'm successful, other days not so much. Um, you know, it's an ongoing battle. But rebellion against God without repentance prevents us from participating in the creation of sacred space. Absalom, if he would have repented, if he would have continued in good relationship with his father, he was the next in line to inherit. Who was going to build the, te- uh, the temple? This has already been stated. This is the Second Samuel 7. David's son, the one who came to the throne after David, would have built the temple. Absalom never repented. He could not build sacred space. He had to be stopped. This was not something God could allow. I mean, how do you allow a man who not only does these horrible things, but never acknowledges that they're wrong, build sacred space? So God says right here, I mean, this is a clear-cut picture of if you're going to engage in this kind of violence against women, if you're going to allow arrogance to, to dictate your choices, you don't get to become sacred space. You don't get to participate in the creation of sacred space. God is going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And we stay in exile until we're willing to, to repent. And we experience the consequences of that rebellion. So, you know, most people don't want to accept this one indisputable fact, and we see it presented over and over in the Bible. When we rebel against God's declared law, intents, and purposes, we declare ourselves to be enemies of God. God doesn't come to us and say, I hate you because you're a horrible person. God says, I'm, I'm here to give you an option to, to join with me, to become a part of the family. Now, if you don't want to do that, I'll let you go. I'll let you do your thing. But there's consequences. And basically, when we say we don't want to honor our father, which is what Absalom said, he didn't want to honor his father, we become Absalom in our own stories. We're, you know, we're the son who thinks we have a better grasp of justice. And we, we think we can do things better than even God can do them, that our dictates are above God's dictates, just like mm-hmm. Absalom thought his were above David's. And so we become, and this is the really weird part, and I, was think, I just spent a lot of time thinking about this, we actually become the ones who invade sacred space. We, we become the ones who our deeds are every bit as heinous as Absalom's because what we wind up doing is we start trying to impose our will on other people who have submitted to God. We start saying, well, you need to accept what I'm saying. You aren't being tolerant. You aren't being merciful. You aren't being kind if you don't accept what I'm saying. And so when we reject what God's saying, in a way, we actively become those who attack God's people. And God protects his children. And I know there's a lot of talk out there, well, how can God be so mean? I mean, why would he bring harm on people? Why would he kill people? Because they're hurting his kids. And anybody who's ever been a parent would understand you don't tolerate that. Right. I mean, I know somebody got in between you and your kids. God help them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) and so we we need to realign our thinking about god uh because just because he makes a stand and has a boundary doesn't mean that he's not kind or considerate it means he's not enabling it means he's not a member of a codependent relationship you know we talk about how healthy it is to have boundaries in human relationships and yet for some reason we act like God shouldn't be able to do that. And it's ridiculous. So the other thing we need to remember in all of this, the earth itself, the total earth, the, all of the globe, every little land, every little island and dot out there, it was created to be sacred space. That was the intent and purpose from the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. The, all of the world was supposed to be sacred space. And so this we're in the middle of a process. Well, yes. And well, and that's the other thing. When God creates humans and tells them to go and subdue the earth, we're mm-hmm. supposed to be 
continuing that creative work into the rest of the world, taking Eden out of Eden into the rest of the world. Yes. And that's where, you know, when we go, oh, well, everything we need is right here. <laughs> you know? Then, yeah. And we, we no longer feel like we need to go and share his kingdom values and, and, and his love and all those things. That's when we really start messing up. Well, and that was what Israel gets in trouble for later on. And we'll get into that when we get further into Second Kings. It's when they started saying, hey, we've got it made. We've got, it, we've got our country. We've got the promised land. We're here. We're living here. We're dwelling here. And whenever they don't take the, the gospel, they don't take the, the, the good news that is contained within the Old Testament, because there's good news in the Old Testament. Uh, when they don't take and share that with other nations and they begin to feel superior and smug, that's whenever they run into problems. And God goes, if you aren't going to leave home, guess what? I'll kick you out. Right. I'll, I'll, if you aren't going to spread the word, I will spread you. And so this is what winds up being the Babylonian exile. And like I said, we'll get into more of that when we, when we get further into Second Kings. But I do want to make it a point that even though I'm saying the whole world is sacred space, and I want to tread lightly here, um, and I don't at the same time. So I'm trying to figure out that line between tact and um, just being blunt. This is not a call to go out and hold some kind of crusade. This is not a call to attack your neighbor who you know, doesn't agree with you, who's not a believer. That's not how we conquer now. That, uh, that's not our tools of warfare now. Well, and we, we've already established that the idea was that David got rid of the Rephaim and the, the physical mm -hmm. manifestations. Mm -hmm. So now it is a spiritual warfare. And so that's part of the reason it's, it's not our job anymore to go out and, and we are not to spread. Don't spread the love of Christ with violence. No. Don't no. attempt to spread the love of Christ with violence. You can't do it. No. And, and, you know, and that's the thing. We, we need to be just being kind, just being a gracious person in this world will have far more impact than any amount of wrath or anger or offense. And, you know, I get so tired of people who talk about, oh, they offended me. Big whoop. I mean, my husband offends me when he breathes sometimes. You know, get over it. Um, there's a real easy solution for most situations where people are offended. You say, have a nice day, and you get out of, get out of there. You remove yourself from the situation. Right. And well, and, and most, most of the time when people are saying they're offended is they're saying, I want you to control my emotions for me. It, uh, it's yeah. oftentimes immaturity. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, when we're talking about these things, we want to we, we really want to focus on the fact that God has called us to love our neighbor. He's called us to, to love each other as we love ourselves and as he has loved us. And mm -hmm. so, you know, how do we do this? How do we exemplify this? Because that's really how you win the war. And sometimes, like I said, when we're trying to win this war, the first opposition is that rebellious part of us. Because in, a lot of times for me to love someone, I have to overcome my own tendency to say that offended me that made right. me mad uh, and that's not easy and there are times that i'm just like lord i can't do it today and so you know what a lot of times that's where i step back and i you know i take a few minutes to regroup that's okay you know sometimes you do need to step back and make sure that you aren't going to go off and say the wrong thing because i can do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it it's not a matter of I've got to change their mind. I have to make them like me. I have to make them believe the same things I do. We just need to keep showing them that God loves them. And to do that in ways that aren't compromising our convictions, which means you don't participate in the same sins that they're um, engaged in. And, you know, uh, back in the day, whenever I was a bartender, uh, I would a lot of times get inv invited to various functions. Um, I won't go into details about what these functions may or may not have been, but they, they didn't reflect my values. They didn't reflect what I believed I needed to be doing as a believer. And, you know, I was still able to maintain friendships with those people because 
I didn't preach at them. I just thanked them for their invitation, thanked them for the fact that, you know, they wanted to include me. They were being nice in the way they knew to be nice. And and then I would go on and I wouldn't I, I, I would not try to to give them some moral lecture that would cut off relationship. I just said no thank you. And sometimes that's all we need to do. No thank you. And if I really wanted to be, you know, flippant and silly, which some people I could be, I you know, tell them, damn, my morals and ethics always get in my way. And, you know, and we would laugh and they would go on and yet they would still come to me and they would still talk to me. And I had moments where I could have that, those conversations that mattered because they didn't feel threatened. They didn't feel like I was going to try to impose my values on them. And that made a safe place where they could explore my morals and values without fear of me judging them or hurting them for not measuring up. Mm-hmm. Because the, the other truth is the only reason why I'm able to maintain any kind of standard in my own personal behavior is because I have God with me. He lives inside of me in the Holy Spirit. I, I, I get that little ping in the back of my head that tells me to straighten it up, that tells me that's not very nice. And, you know, sometimes I wish he'd shut up because I do want to engage that flesh. <laughs> and so um, anyway, that, that's, that's kind of, um, I, I think this is one of the things that Absalom shows us, that, that we have to, we, we see this ongoing theme that there is always the potential for rebellion when there's a creation of, of sacred space. That's kind of the, the focus of where I wanted to be at. That there's always some kind of barrier that has to be overcome, whether we're talking a geographical barrier, an outside, you know, physical enemy. But usually the enemy is from within. And, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, within David's house, with Absalom, it was within the nation, with Samson. It was within creation in Genesis 6. And it was within the garden itself in Genesis 3. And so we shouldn't be surprised when today, when we're the ones, the individual person is becoming sacred space, that the, the rebellious one is within us. Mm-hmm. And so, I, like I said, I just, I see this ongoing pattern. If I'm completely off base, you know, somebody, you know, write us, <laughs> talk to us. We will, we'll figure out whether I'm, I'm wrong or not, because um, there's always that potential. And some days my brain works very well, and some days it likes to go flying off into the wild blue yonder. So, yeah. I, well, I, I I think that's good, and 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 yeah, we are willing to to adjust our perspectives based on on good analysis and and information that we may not have had or may not have taken into account. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really which is really funny. Um, and this is kind of a side note to what you were saying. Um, I was listening to some people the other day and they were talking about how we've got too many new ideas trying to infiltrate the you know the church and you you can't argue with you know 2000 years of of Christian tradition and interpretation and I'm going yeah but uh, some of these ideas didn't start uh 2000 years ago you know <laughs> it's um and yeah. you know it's like and it's like it's there's we're not adding new information it's not information that is new it's mm-hmm. information that a lot of people have failed to take into account. The information's been there. Right. We just haven't looked at it. So, well, well, what's the um, Donald Miller uh, did a DVD presentation that I, I watched? Well, it, you know, it wasn't a DVD presentation. It was, he was speaking someplace. Uh, was it Free Market Jesus? Was that yeah, the free name? Mar- that, that was the name of the, the thing. Yeah. And, and he talks about um, the structure of the home. And I thought this was really interesting because, you know, there's a real big push within the Christian community that um, to be a good Christian woman, and I'm just using this as an example, I'm not trying to harp on the subject, um, but, but there's this push that to be a good Christian woman, I, I literally read a list on Facebook that said that you needed to know how to cook and clean and sew and knit and, you know, all these great domestic skills, which if that's your thing, more power to you, I envy you, okay? You are a better woman than I am. I am not knocking any of those skills. Just well, not. This is, this is where I would like to interject. <laughs> Cooking and cleaning is not a, a feminine <laughs> skill. It is a human skill. 
if you if you are a human, right? You need to you need to eat. <laughs> I would hope, you know. I, and that was so, a... and you and you need to live in a place that's not going to give you E. coli because you can't <laughs> clean it. Um, that's a human skill. And right. I actually, I wish I had known more about cooking when I, you know, before I did. I didn't really learn until I just started learning about cooking about three or four years ago. I mean, I could cook enough to keep me alive, but right. really learning stuff. But that's a that's a human skill, and if you <laughs> you need to eat to live, and it's going to cost you a lot less if you cook at home. That's not a that's not a male female thing. Just learn to do it, whoever you <laughs> right. are. So anyway, go ahead. Well, I mean, but you know. In in Donald Miller's presentation, he actually talks about how the structure of the family was not the women stayed at home and cooked and cleaned and had the kids. That the structure of the family was that you actually did business and lived together as a mm-hmm. family, where the where, where the wife and the husband worked together. You know, whether we're talking, you know, some kind of craftsman type shop where they did, you know, the the artisan skills that were became popular during the Middle Ages, or whether we're talking farming, you know, the the idea that the family lived and thrived or died together, and this mm-hmm. did, did not allow for that that false bifurcation of oh this is workspace and this is home space. It was it was together. Yeah, and it was it was your life. It, and- yes, and, and this idea of these separate roles where the husband goes off and and makes a living and comes home at night and the wife rubs his feet and you know has a hot meal waiting for him that really didn't become part of our cultural stru- uh, um, structure until we saw the industrial revolution and mm-hmm. so we, and we've adopted the this this model based on the industrial revolution as the model for christian families when it's it, it, you cannot find these things laid out that way in the Bible. Yes, it talks about women being keepers of the home, but it also talks about the the husband and his obligations in the home. So again, we've got to be careful not to let cultural standards become the way we measure whether or not someone is a good wife, a good Christian woman, a good Christian man. Um, you know, if, if a if a man can stay at home and take care of his family and cook and clean and care for the kids and the wife is making more money how is that is that sinful i mean that that's what we've got to ask is it a sin does the bible well, say- yeah well and, and the other thing is i mean I think it's funny i mean you look at even just proverbs and, and i mean now granted i i ter- personally do kind of side with the idea that uh the woman described there is the personification of wisdom and not it's it's not a uh, resume requirement for Christian wives, but I mean I I listened to somebody talk the other day about uh you know foolish wives and how they're all you know the Bible says you know a bad wife is loud and obnoxious and and you know raises her voice and I'm like but if you don't but in chapter eight it says wisdom <laughs> it says mm-hmm. does wisdom not, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights right. beside the way at the crossroads? She takes her stand, and besides the gates of the town and the entrance, she cries aloud. It, it's <laughs> read the whole book. I mean that that's, right. <laughs> that's one of my one of my pet peeves is whenever people try to prop this stuff up. They were like, "Well, read this chapter." No, read the whole book. Um, yeah, because most well, of the time, if it's bad theology, it's going to be refuted in that same book uh, you know your bad exegesis can't stand if you put everything back in context well which i guess we're kind of back to what i said at the beginning of the show um <laughs> that was fun <laughs> well I, okay so my my big rebuttal when somebody brings up proverbs 31 i'm like as soon as my husband gives me servants i can get all the stuff done so oh, i mean yeah. you know i let's let's just start there with the man's obligation as the head of the household According to the Bible, he hasn't done that yet. But I mean, shouldn't, you know, shouldn't the church be providing women with real estate licenses, right? Um, so they can go and buy and sell. But so uh, completely off. Now that we've we've gone completely, you gotta go buy and sell. Pardon me, I have fields to buy and sell. I don't have time for the the stuff today. Well, I was gonna say that you brought up something about you know reading the whole book. Um, Okay, so I'm not recommending this show, and, and I need to like find somewhere that I can get just a hold of the clips. 
there, there's this one moment, uh, one scene in there where this woman who has been Miss Goody Two-Shoes of the church, you know, she knows everybody's business and she knows how everything should be done and she criticizes everyone who doesn't do it properly. We all have encountered this woman if you've been in the church for more than five minutes. Um, and I, you Just know, one? Not na- yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. So, and I may have even been this person at one point in time, but I have repented. Uh but she is justifying all of this stuff. I mean, I'm talking like vampire killing kind of stuff, uh, vampires killing people kind of stuff by quoting scripture. And it is just like one of the most brilliant representations I have seen of how people take the Bible and twist it to serve their purposes. And if you don't think we do this, you're lying to yourself. And we all do it. I'm not exempting myself from this. We all do it on some level. I hope that when it's pointed out to me that I will actually take a moment to examine myself and go, am I wrong? And right. I, you know. And have the integrity uh, to to change things if you are. Exactly. And, you know, and now if somebody approaches me, am I going to get mad? That might be my first tendency. I'm still human. But I would hope, and, and I think I'm getting better at this, and, you know, this is, uh, you see all the gray hair if you're watching on YouTube, years of, of learning this, being able to hear a criticism, which is not an attack, by the way, a criticism is a way of helping you become better, uh, mm-hmm. to catch that criticism and go, okay, yeah, this is what I need to work on. And so, you know, when we talk about these concepts, and, and I don't want to just like blast people who don't do things the way I do it. Um, this is hard-earned stuff that that we're talking about. These are things that I know that you and I have talked about over the years. These are uh, views that that we have hashed out, we've thought about, we've adjusted our lives to to be more in line with what we think and what we believe and what we believe the Word of God has revealed to us. And it, it's not saying we're better, and it's not saying that we've got it all figured out. But we're in the process of figuring it out. And we want to share what we've learned because maybe if the next person that comes along can skip a few of the steps I had to take to get here, mm-hmm. then they can go further than I did. Maybe they can take some of that time that I wasted and they can use it more wisely and, and accomplish more than I can. And, and to me, that's winning. That's what the kingdom of God should be about. That we're all empowering each other to do more, to go further, to be better. And maybe you know, going back to that evolution idea that we were talking about in the beginning, maybe that's really where we need to work on evolving, um, not being so enlightened with philosophical ideas, but how we actually live the kingdom better. And so, uh, you know, this this episode's been all over the place, and I almost feel bad for our listeners because <laughs> um, a little, little I'm not disjo- focused. <laughs> disjointed on this show, but that's like, I mean, you you had a big event coming up, I and mean, you've got a house uh, that you've got to go get moved into, and yeah, and I, I've I've had a, a you've a had good a crazy week, week. But a, a good week, but a long week, and so I I spent a lot of my energy um, before the day even started. So, <laughs> you know. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, that's that is the good thing. We have, like, crazy supportive listeners who I think that um, most of them love us. I mean, I, I really do. And it's really kind of odd. Uh, it's, it's humbling. And it's really wild that we've got so many people who have been so supportive and so concerned about us as people. And, you know, that's one of the really cool things about getting to do this is... You know, we talk to people all over the world now, and I, I don't think we could have done that if we had, had, hadn't had done this. Yeah, so, we just kind of tucked ourselves away and didn't yeah. do it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm encouraged by, uh, by how things are, are growing and, and, and some things that are on the horizon for us, and mm-hmm. hopefully some of those will come to fruition. And if not, then I guess we'll just go in a different direction. So. <laughs> oh, hey, you know what? Before I forget, uh, we should mention uh, I'm actually going to be co-hosting with Joe on the Commentarians this month for October. Oh, yeah. uh, so uh, if you want to hear some more of my voice, uh, we're going to be watching. Uh, do we get to? Can I, can I announce the movie? Um, uh, we should. You should be able to because today is the first. So coming attraction oh, okay. should be out today. And then this uh, will uh, air on Monday. So you, okay. you should be fine. 
so yeah, we're we're uh, watching The Conjuring, uh, which is going to be really fascinating because it's based very loosely on the case files of uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who actually worked with the Catholic Church to gather evidence in order to uh, for to decide whether or not people or places warranted a um, an exorcism. And so we're going to talk about kind of some of the stuff they got right, some of the stuff they got wrong, um, where, you know, what I think about them and their approach. And I, I'm really excited about that because that's a, an aspect we don't get to talk about a lot um, as far as the, the spiritual side of things, um, as far as manifestations and are there things that go bump in the night and more, is it more than just your cat? So anyway, uh, I'm excited about that one. Sure. And we'll work sure. that into the <laughs> everything else. Yeah. Well, hey, that that sounds like fun. But um in the until that time, uh I guess we're gonna go ahead and sign off of here because I feel like we're <laughs> we kind of got lost there towards the end. Yeah. Um but everyone, thanks for joining us. And um if you enjoyed it, uh join us the, join the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media. Ravencreeksc.com is the website. You can find this. You can find the commentarians Emily was talking about. Um, hey, I'm wearing the shirt today. Um, <laughs> but the... <laughs> just realize what I'm doing here. Um, the uh, You can find also uh, some other shows. With Luke T. Harrington, Changed My Mind, Answers to Giant Questions with Tim Stedman. Joshua Sherman will be on um, Tending Our Nets. And I think that's all we've got going on at the moment. And... Uh, <laughs> But stay we'll tuned. let you know about other things as they come up. And uh, in the meantime, have a great week and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.